This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. You're listening to the Mornings with Simi podcast. And on today's episode, how are kids going to manage things like physical distancing when schools and part-time classes resume on June 1st? Without knowing when life will return to normal or even some kind of new normal, how can you plan a summer vacation over the next few months? And how do you feel about the idea of allowing drinking in public parks in Vancouver? That and much more coming up on the Mornings with Simi podcast. The province outlining very specific measures around safety in schools. Desks will be spaced out by six feet. High-touch areas like doorknobs and desks will have to be cleaned at least twice a week. Everyone entering a school will need to clean their hands. Drop-offs, lunch, and recess breaks will be staggered. And key to this, anyone entering a school must do a self-health check. That is Global News reporter Richard Zussman on what school is potentially going to look like when part-time classes resume on June the 1st. But we know what kids are like, right? How are kids going to remember to manage things like physical distancing when they are so excited to see their friends again and kind of be back playing in a group? Well, Premier Doug Ford in Ontario pulled the plug on the rest of the school year in that province yesterday, saying he didn't want to chance it. But BC health officials are adamant that we can do it safely. And remember, though, there's a big difference in the number of cases Ontario is seeing versus the number of cases that BC is seeing here. But University of Toronto professor and epidemiologist Dr. Colin Furness joins us now to talk about something that we don't usually or we try not to think about too much, and that is germs in our schools. Dr. Furness, thanks for being here. Good morning. So how, how much of a concern do you think this is, that we're going to have to rely on kids to remember to do some of this stuff? It's no question a cause for concern. Anyone who has kids know their hands get in everything, they yeah. get in everything, and colds um, move through schools uh, like wildfire. So it's not just theoretical. There's a lot of real experience there that says it's, it's a real flashpoint for infection. And do we know how that, like a virus, how colds, how things like this move in a population like a group of kids? We don't understand transmission dynamics very well, not at a micro level. So when we start to think about, well, how much is touch? How much is breathing on each other? We don't really know. Uh, but we know that the sum total of all of that, when you have kids in a congregate setting, it means that there is a lot of transmission that goes on, no question. And is it possible, do you think, to keep things as clean as it sounds like some places are endeavoring to do? I think it's it's going to be an uphill battle, and part of it depends on the age of the kids we're talking about. Um, the older the kids get, I think the easier it is to, to reason with them and to get them to, to monitor their own behavior. Um, younger kids, I mean, they can all nod and they can understand and they can have the best of intentions, but gosh, you know, uh, self-control at younger ages is pretty hard to do. Right. So is that the ages do you think that we should focus on then? Is that going to require, do you think, more work at those younger levels? I think so. And, and you know, we don't have any experience with this. It's going to be interesting to see. I'll be, I'll be watching very closely from Ontario where we're not doing this uh, to see what the experience is. But as was pointed out just before I, I came on, um, it's very important to remember that Ontario, for example, has a lot of community spread, especially in Toronto. BC does not. And so that's a really important piece. If you don't have a lot of community spread, your risk is a lot lower. So for parents who are worried about this, I would say um, that's the main thing to look at. If you don't have a lot to spread in the community, that is the, that's your main risk factor right there. Yeah, maybe you could explain a little bit more about that, because we always hear that term community spread, but what does it mean? How does it work? 
So it means that someone turns up uh, with a positive test for COVID-19, and we can't attribute it. We can't say, oh, you know, you are related to someone or you live with someone who was in a long-term care home, for example, where there was a spread. In other words, we can't connect the dots. So if you're a mystery, that we call that community spread. That means you picked it up somewhere off a handrail or a stranger, and we don't know. Right, and you're saying that is a big concern in Ontario? It's a big concern whenever you can't count all your cases or attribute all your cases. And in Ontario, that is that is Toronto area particularly, that is a significant issue still, yes. Right, so you're seeing Toronto and Montreal seem to be the two hotspots. Yes, and it maps to where you have not just a lot of people, but also high density. That is to say, relatively crowded urban settings. That's a, that's the, the virus has a, has a really good opportunity to move in that kind of context. Right. So when you when you look at that, when you look at BC and you think, okay, no community spread here, uh, this is just a big test, though, isn't it? It is. It very much is, and uh, we will obviously learn quite learn quite a bit from it. That, that may not feel comforting to people who are getting ready to send their kids back. No one wants to be a guinea pig. But I, when looking at it from the other side of the country, I, I think it's appropriate. I think this this is uh, the right thing to do in terms of being able to move on with things because there's no community spread. I would never suggest that's appropriate for Ontario. So when you look at how germs move and where germs sit and where we pick them up, what would you think would be those really important areas to make sure they get cleaned and sanitized in schools? A lot of clinicians believe that it is really droplets from the air that it's inhalation. I, and partly because of my own research is really more on hand hygiene and touch, I think that touch matters a lot, maybe a lot more than people think, because uh, when you exhale or cough, uh, what's in the air stays in the air only temporarily, and then it settles down on surfaces. And depending on the surface, it can live for quite some time, three days on a, on a hard surface like metal or glass, plastic. So uh, cleaning those surfaces that people touch, not the floor, but cleaning surfaces that people touch, I think, matters. And the goal of cleaning these surfaces twice a week strikes me as not ideal. I think twice a day would be better. Mm. <laughs> uh, and that's a, that's, a, that's a big difference right there. Right, twice a day though in a school that seems like a, a reach. Like I don't know if that they're going to be able to do. Well, you'd that. have to have someone whose job it was to move around the school. It's like painting the Brooklyn Bridge. As soon as you finished, um, you start again. So uh, we've heard about this in restaurants, right? This is what they're doing in restaurants. When uh, one person starts cleaning, you start at one end, you work to the other, and then it's over. You just start right from the beginning again. But for schools, yeah. like for desks and things like that, like are there high traffic areas that they really should focus on? Um. No, it's hard to know because every school is going to have a, a different. So it, some schools may be open and the age matter. Hmm, okay, well, you were kind of cutting out there. Could you just repeat that for us? Yes, I'm getting some beeping on my line, and I don't know why. I'm sorry. Ah, okay. Uh, <laughs> oh, we see. The the age of the school and the physical configuration of the school can actually matter um, in terms of uh, how much space there is, how much crowding there is, and you know even the age of the furniture and, and, and what have you. So pretty hard to come up with just one description there. All right. Interesting. Dr. Furness, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. That's Dr. Colin Furness. He's an epidemiologist and professor at the University of Toronto. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we're talking about heading back to school here in BC in some forms and for some students. That means June the 1st. In other provinces, not so much to talk more about all of this. We're joined now by our Nikki Retmeyer. Good morning, Nikki. 
Good morning, Simi. Yeah, it seems that every province has a different policy on this, and rightfully so. They're reacting to what's happening in their own community. I'm glad this isn't being dealt with sort of by the federal government and that provinces yes. are able to say, okay, our province is doing okay, or you know, our province isn't doing so okay, and let's adjust accordingly. So, of course, BC and Ontario looking different uh, in regards to how kids are going back to school because what's happening in those communities as far as the spread of COVID-19 is fairly different. So we know that Ontario Premier Doug Ford announced that they'll be closing schools for the rest of the year. Take a listen. The safety of our children is my top priority. And one thing I will never do is take unnecessary risk when it comes to our children. And that's why, after careful consideration, after consulting with the health experts, it is clear that we cannot open schools at this time. Uh, that's Ontario Premier Doug Ford there. And that's interesting, Nikki, because we just spoke to an epidemiologist about this saying that's the right decision for Ontario. But in B.C., because we have no community spread here, that it wouldn't make sense to do the same thing. He said that he agrees with the decision in B.C. to open up the schools. Yeah, I thought your last guest was really interesting, too, because he made me think about, you know, if we are going to be opening schools, Maybe, you know, it's it's high school instead of elementary school, say, because, of course, he was noting that it takes a lot more work to get the younger kids to follow the rules. They're going to be in school still wanting to grab each other and and share pencils and pens and touch books and all this kind of stuff. Whereas, you know, the older kids, he said, they, they kind of get it more. It's a bit easier to get those kids to follow the rules. So he made me think that there is perhaps even more flexibility in how we approach going back to school instead of maybe all schools, right. it's by a certain age or so. Right. But even in BC, didn't they say that it's optional for parents? Like, don't do yeah. this if you're not comfortable. Well, really, yeah, exactly. That's what this all comes down to is, you know, it, you can and some students, you know, will be returning June 1st. But this isn't mandatory. I mean, the police aren't going to show up at your door and drag your kid to school on June 1st. If you're not comfortable, then don't send your kid to school on June 1st. And I know there was a story that Global News was airing of a woman who started a petition to stop schools from reopening. Now, she's essentially asking if it's worth the risk of reopening schools so close to the end of the year. Like, look, we're almost here at the end of the year. Why don't we just do what Ontario is doing and start things again in September? So uh, this is Patricia Cullen explaining why she launched the petition. For me, the concerns are on two fronts. One would be for my child's uh, mental well-being. It's been quite a change to homeschool, and she's just now getting to that place that it's comfortable. So to switch it up again, just and not to go back to the way it was, which would be a comfort, but to add another environment for her to learn in this year would be is a huge challenge and a huge concern for me. The second concern that I have is obviously for the actual transmission of the virus. So I had the virus at the top of March, right before spring break, and she was with me in quarantine. So I know what it is and how it affects some people. And I also know that even with a child directly under my supervision in my small space the entire time, you cannot keep, especially in an elementary age child, from touching their face or spreading germs like they they're just they're just not there to exercise that level of self-awareness and even if they were i would imagine it would be quite um stress inducing for them to have to constantly think about that 
Um, I just I just think it's ridiculous as far as the health and welfare of the children go. All right. So that's Patricia Cullen. So then Nikki, why doesn't I mean, she can keep her child home. Her child doesn't have to go to school. Well, yeah. I mean, right. Like why launch the petition? Well, yeah. Like, again, if you if you don't want to send your kid to school, then, then don't. don't. This is not mandatory on June 1st. I, I have faith that our provincial government I think has done well so far in guiding us through this. I mean, we seem to be doing extremely well compared to other provinces or other states or other places around the world. And if they think that it's okay to move ahead with the reopening of some schools, especially so you're allowing some parents to be able to get back to work if they need to do that as of June 1st, well, you know, I do have faith that they're making the right choice. I get what this woman is saying, because this, of course, was a really big message at the beginning of this pandemic, that you want to maintain social distancing so that you're not spreading this, so that you encourage everybody to stay home instead of of trying to spread this further. Um, But I I have faith that I, I think that they believe that we're at a good place where some kids can return to school again. And if you're comfortable doing that, then send your kids to school. And if not, then then don't. Then don't. <laughs> and they were very clear on that. Rob Fleming, the education minister, was very clear that they don't want to, parents to feel like they are forcing their children home. I kind of feel for kids, though, in all of this, because oh, yeah. I was looking at the weather outside today, and I said to our producer, Greg, this is that kind of day where, you know, you don't want to be in school. Like, remember when you were in school and the weather started to turn good in, like, May and early June, and you just wanted the school year to be over? Oh, so desperate just to get yeah. outside. Come on, isn't it summer? This is yet? one of those days yet? looking outside. Like the weather wise, this is one of those days. And now we're talking about sending our kids back to school for the month of June. So yeah. If <laughs> your kids true. don't want to go though, don't don't send them if they don't want to. Yeah, absolutely. Um I'm not sure if do we have time for Shane Woodford? Probably not, but we were talking to Shane Woodford yesterday. Uh, and he was giving us an update on some yeah. of um, their school reopening. So we know that this is happening, of course, uh internationally as well as on a local level. This is something that really we're dealing with as a, as, as a world, it's yeah. a world pandemic. And now we're all seeming to deal with this one issue, which is, you know, should we be sending our kids back to school? So it's a debate that we're having here in Metro Vancouver, but it's certainly not limited to British Columbia or even Ontario, Canada, etc. So this goes global. So true. Nikki, thank you. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Tough times for a lot of teens out there because they're probably missing prom. And you know how it goes for so many kids. Maybe they planned what they were going to wear like a year ago. They probably shopped for it over Christmas. Maybe that dress is still hanging in the closet or whatever it was that they were planning to wear. Well, there are some alternative ideas that have been proposed to make this grad year a little bit more special without that actual, you know, prom or actual big uh, dinner that they usually have. One group has created an online Cross Canada virtual prom. And our Nikki Reitmeyer spoke to Laura De Silva, a spokesperson for the Student Life Network. Why do you think that there's such a big demand for it? What is it that is missing that students really, really want for their grad in 2020? I think they just want some marker to celebrate and come together. It's obviously kind of a rite of passage that most people have that they're not going to be receiving. So they're just trying to make the most of it. And the most we can do right now is to come together online. Uh, we also polled our students in our network and uh, something like 76 of them had already purchased their prom dresses and suits and were kind of ready to go. So there's also a need to kind of share that stuff, just like the little things, you know? (laughs) 
Yeah, it's true. You know, when you think about students getting ready for prom, this is something that they have physically started preparing for over the past 12 months, you know, buying the dresses and, you know, buying the accessories for their hair and whatever else. But mentally, they've been preparing for this moment, probably since they first started school. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of something you look forward to. And it's a it's a milestone. And that's why we're trying to bring in some prominent Canadians to give some words of encouragement and just to remind the students that this is still their time. It's a time to look forward to whatever's coming next. And though we're in a pandemic and it's different, it's still their time. So how does an online prom work anyways? We have no idea. And we're just trying to figure it out as we go. Um, We're just trying to include kind of the normal elements that prom would have, which is music and dancing and fun and some speeches. We're honestly trying to cobble it together as we go. (laughs) So on top of that, you're also raising some support for the Kids Help Phone too, right? Yeah, so every student, there's three ways you can kind of jump into this. Uh, TikTok, Instagram, or RSVP into the live event, and each of those actions leads to a donation from Kids Help Phone. And we have um, our lead partner with Student Life Network is CIBC. So they're on board to help with the donation side. That's awesome. And kids through this going to the virtual prom, they might even be able to make some new friends too, right? Because there's interactions that can happen between the students. Yeah, for sure. Online right now on Instagram, everyone's um, prom posing to each other. So they're um, tagging their friends saying, will you go to virtual prom with me kind of thing. It's really, it's neat to see. Um, and then on during the live stream on YouTube, our comments will be open. So we want people to chime in, let us know where they're coming in from, which province and which school and that kind of thing. <laughs> you said promposal. For some people who don't know what the promposal is, can you explain? Yeah, promposal is kind of like um, when you have a wedding proposal and ask someone to marry them. But in this case, it's asking them to prom. And over the past few years, it's kind of blown up into this online thing where people go very elaborate. Like last year, someone rented a helicopter and spelled out, will you go to prom with me in a field for their date? That kind of thing. So um, online, there's some examples of some really crazy elaborate ways of asking people to prom. (laughs) And I think that that really emphasizes how important and how significant prom is when you're a grade 12 student. For them, that is the, it's like a wedding proposal when you ask someone to prom. That's how significant it is in their young lives. And that, again, is why it's so disappointing that the grad class of 2020 won't be having that traditional prom experience. And that's why it's so important that some of these cool alternatives are offered. For sure. Yeah. Even myself, I remember it's something you just have in the back of your mind. It's like the, it's kind of like the peak of the mountain of your high school career and these students aren't going to have the same experience. So we're just trying to jump in and give them something similar. <laughs> well, that's our Nikki Rodmeyer speaking to Laura De Silva, the spokesperson for the Student Life Network. Now students can RSVP or they can check it out online. It is promison2020.com. It's kind of cool, right? Prom is on 2020.com and they're going to live stream the prom on May the 22nd. So we're also asking you about school today. Uh, We know that kids in Ontario, not going back to school until September. Kids here, well, kind of going back to the classroom June 1st, depends on the parents, depends on the school. So you have the option of sending your child back to school in June here in BC. But we want to know as a parent, how do you feel about that? 
Are you sending your kid back to school? Are you thinking, yeah, we'll check this out? Or you think, you know what? Now nah, I'm just going to play it safe and keep them home for the rest of the school year. You let me know. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. We know so many of us out there are itching to go somewhere. We also know that the Premier has told us this is likely a staycation kind of summer, meaning we'll be vacationing in our own backyard, so to speak, somewhere in BC. So with the summer months kind of approaching, uh, we're wondering, well, where can we go? What can we do? Some parks have opened. Some national parks are going to be reopening as of June 1st. But what kind of vacations and day trips can we actually plan for? To talk more about this, we're joined now by Louise Patterson with the Outdoor Recreation Council of BC. Good morning, Louise. Good morning, Simi. So are you ready for a staycation this summer? <laughs> yeah, I know I had kind of planned a big a big trip, you know, throughout throughout BC to see some of our, our beautiful parks. But yeah, I know this, this summer is going to be, uh, you know, it's going to be one of a kind, hopefully. Uh, we're definitely being asked to, uh, you know, to stay local. To, in order to kind of stay safe. Um, but there's still lots of places where we can go. As you mentioned, um, a lot of the parks are actually opening up. Um, BC Parks is opening up for camping registrations on May 25th. So if you've got um, a BC Park that is slated for opening, uh, that that is within your area, then you might want to you might might want to explore that. There's also recreation sites and trails. Um, they are an agency under the Ministry of Forest. They they maintain uh, 1,200 rec sites. Uh, most of them are yeah they're very inexpensive and they're kind of scattered all around the province. Um, so there might be something to to check out as well. Right. But I guess this, this is tricky, right? This idea of a staycation because where is overnight camping going to be allowed? Yeah, so overnight camping is going to be allowed from from June first. But you know the messages are still to to stay local, to avoid visiting you know smaller communities that are that that are not able to kind of cope with uh, you know a flare up in um, in uh, in COVID incidents uh, there. Uh, so yeah, no, it's really about kind of being very creative and and looking at uh, kind of your your own area and and um and just kind of looking at looking at some of some of the spots that maybe are, are less explored because one of the things that we will also have to kind of keep in mind is the the physical distancing avoiding crowded places right. um so yeah so we have to be a little creative and 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 look for places that are maybe a little bit off the the charts or that are a little um less well-known in order to, um, you know, get into situations where we will encounter crowding. That's really tough, though, isn't it? Because certain places we know are just, like, crazy busy, like Joffrey Lakes. Uh, Yeah, yeah. No, Joffrey Lakes uh, is not slated for opening anytime soon. Um, So so that would be, you know, that that, that would definitely not be, be, be part of our plans this year. But you know, there's still lots of things that we can we can do. You know, um, locally hiking, riding a bike, fishing. Fishing is is one of the activities that has really kind of taken off, uh, along with bird watching. Um, so just kind of staying really? local. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one one stat that I uh, um, so some data that I came across the other day, a Google um, location data has indicated that park visits in BC are up by eighty four percent since uh, since late March. So you know, British Columbians really really care about our outdoor spaces, uh, you know, our parks and trails have provided a lot of relief and a lot of uh, joy, you know, to, to bridge Columbians over the past two months. So, but not all parks are open, right? Like some of the bigger ones still aren't open. Would you like to see those opened up? Yeah, I, and I know that BC Parks actually, they're they definitely working on that. Uh, they're working with the, um, 
Yeah, well, yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a it, I guess it's a, a fairly slow process, but we also have to keep in mind that they actually have 600 parks to to maintain and to kind of create uh, plans for. So I think you know we we just need to be, we need to be a little a little patient, but yeah, like people in in the low main mainland are definitely you know looking forward to seeing some of the bigger parks, Cypress, Seymour opening up again. But um, yeah, BC Parks just re- you know um, the, announced that they're opening up Golden Ears, um, so Golden Ears right. <clears throat> is is open as well. So that that's really good 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 news for people that live out in um in in the maple ridge area right but we also know the demand is pretty high too right to get out to places like that exactly exactly yeah no so we're definitely hoping that uh, you know some of our local parks around uh, vancouver will open up and and that will take off some of the pressure on on um, the regional and municipal parks because uh, we, we've seen that those have been you know th- those are really crowded on, on a nice day is it going to be possible, do you think, Louise, later this summer to maybe travel to another part of the province and explore some of those parks? Mm-hmm. So we are currently in uh, phase two. And, and at the moment, yeah, we're still being asked to, to, to stay local as we go into phase three. And, you know, uh, given um, uh, um, that, that the rates of, of, of COVID-19 are kind of staying, staying low, I, I think that might be something that, uh, that we'll start to see. But, yeah, we have to kind of wait and see what the provincial health officer says about that. But that is definitely my hope that as the summer um, that progresses. Mm-hmm. So I think we are expecting to kind of hear more, you know, in, in, um, in, in June about that, uh, about what that next phase will look like. But uh, I think that's what, you know, that is what Destination BC is, is, is um, <clears throat> planning as well, that uh, this is going to be a summer where, you know, we're not, we're definitely not encouraging any tourists to kind of visit, but it's, it's, it's for British Columbians to, right. to become more familiar with their own province. And I mean, we live in a spectacular place. We really do. Well, fingers crossed that we get to explore some of that. Louise, Thank you. Thank you so much. That is Louise Pedersen, the Outdoor Recreation Council of BC, talking about those staycations or vacationing in our own backyard. We talked about Golden Ears Park that had just recently opened. So it was open for the long weekend, right? The Victoria Day long weekend, but not for overnight. So it was just for day use only. It opened. It was so busy on Victoria Day at Golden Ears Park that officials had to turn vehicles away in the morning. Apparently, there were cars lined up to get into the park even before the park opened. Uh, they already decided that they were only going to let a limited number of vehicles into the park on the holiday Monday. And so they said, okay, we'll reach that limit. And that's, I think that's about half of what their actual limit was. But they wanted to make sure there was enough you know, distancing and space and all of that. So something like 700 vehicles would be allowed. Well, they reached that uh, by about 930 in the morning. And so after that, it was just a matter of kind of managing the coming and going. But boy, oh boy, it was crazy busy down there. I think it just shows you how people really do want to get out and about. And if it means, you know, staying in BC and having a vacation this year, people are ready to do it. They just need somewhere to go now in BC as well. Tell me what your plans are for this summer. You can email me, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we've been talking about schools, right? Kids going back to class, but that's mainly kids in the K-12 system. What about post-secondary schools? What are they going to look like? Not just this summer, but in the fall when things are supposedly going to be 
back to more of a sense of normal. Well, at Kwantlen Polytechnic, the campus there is going to look a lot different, apparently. They're one of the schools that are investigating just how much they can actually do online because of the uncertainty heading into September. To talk more about that now, we are joined by Dr. Sandy Vanderberg, who's the KPU Provost and VP Academic. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you, Sammy. Thanks for inviting me here this morning. Appreciate Dr. It. Vandenberg, yeah, tell me about the process that KPU has been going through here. Oh, it's, uh, it's been a long process, it seems like. I know in January I went to our president, Dr. Alan Davis, you know, third week of January, asking to uh, set up a COVID response team just to monitor the situation. And then suddenly in March, we broke for two days and totally pivoted 180 degrees, and our faculty and staff all came together and delivered off the rest of the spring semester in a remote format and then we continued that remote delivery format for the summer semester with a lot of the learning happening online in a remote format and then for the fall we're sort of trying to figure out exactly how we're going to be but we want to mainly be in an online format remote delivery but we know that there's some programming like trades um, horticulture uh, um, health and technology where some learning outcomes just have to be delivered in a face-to-face environment. So we're trying to sort of sew all the things together and make a plan that would be good for the fall. Right now, but from right now, though, what you're thinking is looking at September, it will be mainly, mm-hmm. though, online? Yeah, we're looking at mainly remote online delivery with hopefully asynchronous and synchronous components. So some delivery that where the students don't have to be there in the classroom with some delivery that uh, students can do um, uh, with the faculty member online. We're also looking at uh, having some face-to-face activity at some of our campuses, and for those programs, we're developing very uh, detailed health and safety plans with our faculty, with the administrators. They'll be signed off by OH&S and then uh, by myself so that we can meet all provincial health authority standards around uh, health and safety for our students and for our employees. And what has the students' reaction been to this? I mean, what about the students who still want to have that in-class experience? Well, it's been challenging. I know... um, that's why we're trying to come up with a plan that has a mix of both asynchronous and synchronous so that they can have some sort of uh, virtual in-class experiences if you want. So far, we haven't heard too many negative comments from students or, or, or any comments at all, really. They, we got through the spring, summer semester just started last week, um, and then where it's really critical to have those hands-on experiences, we're going to be doing some face-to-face work. So it's a challenge, but we're, you know, we're living kind of in a different world than I thought we would be uh, at this time last year. Aren't so. we all? Yeah. Yeah. No kidding, eh? Yeah. Aren't we all? Yeah, uh, what absolutely. about What about enrollment? What have those numbers been like, right? Because you've got a graduating yeah. class that probably has a lot of uncertainty yeah. as well. How are How's KPU dealing with that? You know, I think through the hard work of our faculty and staff, we we are where we want it to be. We're, we're within a small percentage of where we were last summer. Our Our total number of students are down but then our number of students taking more classes has increased a little bit. So we're actually in a very good position, at least for the summer semester. Now, what about international enrollment? We know that's been a huge issue for a number of institutions. How does that affect KPU? Yeah, we have fairly healthy international numbers. A lot of interruptions have stayed on board in Canada for the, for the uh, duration of this. So they're here and taking additional courses. And then right now our international department is contacting potential uh, new students uh, in regards to fall enrollment and uh, looking at opportunities for how they may study uh, continually. And there's recently been an announcement by Immigration Canada where students can actually be overseas, study online, 
and uh, it won't be penalized against their time uh, that they can be in Canada. And really? That's sort of a new, a new change, yes. So you may be able to keep some of your international students by using online instructions for them as well? Absolutely, yeah. We have students that are uh, you know, overseas right now studying in our courses. <clears throat> that's pretty interesting. Are other institutions yes. doing that? I'm not sure. Uh, I think I think some are, but KPU is in a unique situation because we have such a healthy summer offering. Uh, I, I keep in close contact with other colleagues in, in our sector. Uh, they don't offer as large of a summer programming opportunity as KPU does, but I know they're looking at uh, looking at these ideas because you know, international students are an important part of our culture and a part, a part of our student mix. Right. So are you looking at expanding that? You said you already offer a pretty healthy mix of summer courses, but has there been demand for more? Actually, in some areas, yes, we've had to put on, uh, we call them on-demand sections. So in some courses like introductory English, uh, on some first-year arts courses and some first-year business, we've, we've had to find extra instructors for extra sections. Is this- so it is a neat, I think, I think people, you know, it's a good time to stay in school and get, get education. And if you're at home and doing it online and you don't have to move out and pay rent and so it might be a good right. opportunity for a lot of learners. Dr. Vanderberg, is, is some of this, do you think, permanent, or are you just kind of waiting until you can have everybody back on the actual campus? You know, I, we had a meeting yesterday and talking about what the future of COVID will look like, or, or if this is just going to be a, a, COVID, a world where COVID exists. And I think um, there's going to be probably higher demand for students to want to study online or at home, mm-hmm. and there's going to be greater demand uh, for people to to be working at home, so I think we're we need to start talking about the thing, these things in more detail, and that's what we're doing at KPU. Um, read an article in the New York Times last night just about the 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 amount of office space that's going to be yeah. available in downtown Mon- Manhattan. So we're thinking about those things at KPU because it, I think it's where the future is going to be to some extent. Yeah, and how many campuses do you have? And that's added to the fund. We have five campuses, so we're, we're proud of that, but it does make the logistics uh, more challenging for us. But we have five campuses. We have uh, two in Surrey, one in Richmond, uh, one in Langley, and one in Coverdale. Right. So all of that is kind of up for discussion in the next year. Uh, no, they'll be operating in various, in various ways. Uh, I know some unique programs. We have unique programs distributed throughout our campuses, so... For example, at the Richmond campus, we have our Wilson School of Design, and we're going to be having a cohort of our our, our tech apparel students there in the fall. So they'll be they'll be active in in different ways uh, throughout our system. So interesting, Dr. Vanderberg. Thank you. Hey, no problem. Thank you very much for uh, inviting me here today. That Long is time listener. No, thank you. Thank you for that. We appreciate your time. <laughs> That's Dr. Sandy Vanderberg, KPU Provost and VP Academic. So Kwantlen Polytechnic University, as you heard Dr. Vanderberg say, uh, they've definitely changed how they do things. They've got five campuses, but they have moved for the summer semester uh, mainly online, and they are looking to do that heading into the fall semester as well. On international enrollment, I thought that was really interesting because I thought, you know, post-secondary institutions will also definitely be impacted by the lack of international students. And he said they're still working on including those international students because if they're doing it online, so can the international students. This is Mornings with Simi.
awesome story that I want to share with you because it's just such a great thing. And it started at a fast food drive through window, if you can actually believe it. Joining us now is Joshua Bradshaw, the president of Vital Manufacturing, and he graduated from the BCIT Mechanical Engineering Technology Program. Hi, Joshua. Good morning. How are you today? I'm doing great. Yourself? I'm great. Thank you very much. Tell me about this new product that you've come up with. Sure. Yeah. Thank you very much for having me on, first of all. Um, And yeah, we invented this product uh, back in early March when uh, the pandemic was kind of really starting to cripple Canada. Um, And it is a face shield that mounts directly to a ball cap, of all things. So uh, we really came up with the innovation, like you said, going through a drive-through window, noticing that almost every employee inside was already wearing a ball cap as part of their uniform. And uh, as we were looking to use our resources to help, we, uh, we quickly came up with this innovation and, uh, and developed uh, the cap shield as it is now. So you were having, you're at the drive-through and you're looking and you're like, you know, somebody should really help these guys out with a better face shield. Yeah, well, pretty much we kept seeing online any of the solutions out there for face masks and face shields. You'd see all these medical members of nurses and doctors that are taking their masks off and having red marks all over their face, just looking terribly uncomfortable. And we can't imagine having to wear those all day long. So we uh, were looking for a more comfortable solution. Everybody's already used to wearing a ball cap and it's comfortable to wear all day. It also has the structure on the brim. So we just uh, decided to develop something that could attach directly to their existing comfort. Right. Okay. So you started manufacturing these? Yeah. Yeah. We've been uh, we've been selling them, uh, getting an incredible response from the community, especially supporting local manufacturing, and uh, and we've sold uh, yeah well over thirty thousand units, I think, in the first two weeks, wow. and uh, and just just really doing great with that sales. And uh, we're donating ten for every hundred we sell. So we've already sent out I think fifteen hundred or two thousand donation units to nonprofit and volunteer organizations. So. Not yeah, going shabby. really well. Very exciting to be uh, be able to make a difference and, and help the cause. Well, not too shabby. Good job, Joshua. Thanks so much for telling us about it. Yeah, thank you for having me on. And good luck. That's Joshua Bradshaw. He's the president of Vital Manufacturing, graduated BCIT Mechanical Engineering Technology Program. Put that to good use. Didn't waste any time there. Going through the drive through decided, yeah, you know what? We need better face shields. Boom, came up with one uh, that you can attach to a baseball hat. How handy is that? And it's going to be really needed, I would say, over the next few months. And as you can tell, demand is way up on that. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, we've been talking this morning about the idea of going back and eating in a restaurant now that a lot of you were able to in many different locations. But there are still those of us still a bit apprehensive about that. You'd like to go and sit somewhere and maybe have a glass of wine or a beer, but do you really want to do it inside where you still have questions about cleaning and disinfecting and all of that? Well, what about outside? Even if there is somewhere to go in your neighborhood, I think a lot of people would love to be able to, you know, sit down at the park or maybe at the beach and have a glass of wine, except you're not allowed to. That would change, though, if our next guest had her way. It is Councillor Christine Boyle with Vancouver City Council, who joins us now. Thank you very much for being here. Thanks for having me. What is this motion that you're putting forward? So the, the motion is to ask the park board, whose jurisdiction uh, our parks and beaches are, to um, to allow responsible consumption uh, of beer and wine in our parks and beaches. Has the Park Board shown any indication or a willingness to listen to this? Uh, they have. So the Park Board uh, in 2008 unanimously 
uh, passed a motion that Commissioner Dave Demers brought forward looking at a feasibility study for a pilot to um, to make this change. Uh, and a few months before that actually had also approved a motion looking at our um, parks and beaches or the, the um, concession stand selling alcohol. So it's an issue that has come up again and again. And I think now is the time to uh, act quickly to make it real for the reasons that you just stated. Our health uh, experts are advising us to get outside where transmission of the virus is lower. Um, our local restaurants are uh, many of them selling local beer and wine with takeout as a way to stay in business um, and to keep up business even when they have some people eating in uh, because we know there'll be fewer people able to do that. So mm. there's lots of reasons why I think now is the moment to finally move forward on this. Not to mention, actually, I'll add, this is a summer where we'll have far fewer festivals and visitors. You know, there's no festival of light. So I think, again, it's a good time to be um, to be testing it out, seeing what we learn and um, and adapting from there. What is the relationship like right now between Vancouver City Council and the Park Board? Because we saw with the situation in Oppenheimer Park, things there did not go smoothly. Sure. I think the relationship um, is good. I've been in in regular touch with a number of park commissioners about this issue um, and and about many other issues that we all care about um, and that people are talking about relative to COVID, the uh, traffic in Stanley Park and many other things. So um, this is clearly and squarely an advocacy motion. It's not something I can do myself. Uh, it's for council to add our voices to encourage and support the park board in moving in this direction uh, quickly. Uh, how do you respond as well, Councillor Boyle, to the concerns, some of the criticisms that people have leveled at Vancouver Council for not moving fast enough to do things like opening up more pedestrian areas, uh, you know, making it easier for people to walk around the city during this COVID-19 situation? I share that frustration. I'd love to see us moving a lot more quickly in that direction. You know, I know um, I will say my attention in the um, first part of this pandemic was was very focused on our most vulnerable populations and how we make sure that we uh, protect and support them to um, to be planking the curve. Uh, and um, and now I am thinking a lot about recovery and what that looks like um, in the short term with efforts like closing down more streets and widening sidewalks and patios and creating space uh, and what we can learn from those in terms of the city that we want to to be after this pandemic. So we're not going back to normal. We're actually moving into uh, a a better Vancouver. So when you envision this bylaw, like allowing people to drink outdoors, how does it look? Within reason, like, does it have to be parks? Does it have to be the beaches? What would be the rules? So the operations piece would be park board jurisdiction, but I think there's some pretty interesting examples to look at. So in Montreal, the rule is that you can drink wine or beer in the park um, with a meal, uh, with a picnic, etc. There's an example uh, out of Australia, um, New South Wales, where they have allowed responsible consumption of, uh, of alcohol in public parks, except in designated spaces that are signposted that are, you know, a, a dry, alcohol-free part of the beach or park. 
Mm-hmm. And I like that option, too. I think it makes a lot of sense to be able to create spaces for people who don't want to be around alcohol. And quite frankly, right now, we don't have that because we know people are drinking beer and wine in all of our parks. So uh, so creating some of those dry spaces seems like a good idea to me. Uh, I'd like to see us move forward for this summer as quickly as we can and then keep adapting and listening to people and making sure that the policies uh, that we create work for as many people as possible. I, I will add, I know it gets framed as a fun city issue, and I'm I'm all for fun, but I also think that this is an equity issue. You know, people in Vancouver, and especially renters, are living in smaller spaces with limited private outdoor space, and big private yards have become quite a luxury in Vancouver. So mm-hmm. for those of us who don't have them, our public parks and beaches serve as that outdoor living space. All right. Well, we will follow along with this. Thanks very much for your time. Thanks for having me. That is Christine Boyle, Vancouver City Councillor, putting forward a motion to have Vancouver City Council ask the Park Board to take a look at allowing people to have a drink, or a glass of wine, a beer, in parks and beaches around the city. What do you think of that idea? You can email me, simi at cknw.com.